This is 36 million people buying a refrigerator for the、mm. first time. This is people buying a TV for the first time, or even flying for the first time. So it's this Brazilian dream that it's almost impossible to believe. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next forty. I've been teaching this term. I love teaching, and in the first week of term, we went through some of the classic texts about the history of democracy, from the Federalist Papers to Edmund Burke to Benjamin Constant's "The Liberty of the Ancients Compared to the Liberty of the Moderns." All crucial texts. One thing that struck me in that conversation is that the concept that students grappled with the most, and also frankly rejected the most, was the concept of the common good or the public good, which stands at the heart of the theory of deliberative democracy of representative government. Why, Edmund Burke argues, should we have representatives who are independent of the ideas of the voters, ones who can actually go by the conscience, because they should come together to deliberate about the public good? This is the same idea that James Madison puts forward in Federalist Number Ten: that Congress together should somehow represent public views in a better light, in a higher light than just an arithmetic sum of the views of their constituents. Well, it's easy to understand why, when you look around the world right now, that doesn't seem like what's happening. It's easy to understand why you're not looking at Congress and saying that actually is a more noble, a better vision of the public good than whatever the arithmetic sum of Americans might think. But the fact that this very idea of a common good or public good now seems so quaint to us, I think, is a pretty deep challenge to the justification of our basic political system, and it might help to explain a little bit why so many citizens feel alienated. From our political institutions, why they might feel that you know what, this voting for a representative every two years, this voting for a senator every six years, that's kind of a scam. Nobody is listening to me anyway. So I don't have an answer here,、uh, but it's something that I've been grappling with since getting the wonderful chance to reteach those texts a couple of weeks ago. Today I'm really excited to have a conversation about a topic that's way overdue on the Good Fight. As always, it's wonderfully upbeat. It's Brazil and Jair Bolsonaro. And as my guest, I have Cheyenne Polimejo, who I've known for a long time. She's the deputy director of the Political Reform Program at New America, and a great thinker about what's going on in Brazil. We've had a really deep conversation about the nature of Bolsonaro, how he does and doesn't compare to other populists around the world, what the causes of his rise are, and what we might be able to learn about it. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast, Cheyenne. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, my pleasure. So, look, obviously, people who haven't been thinking much about Brazil have suddenly discovered the country. It is in for all of the wrong reasons. I want to make sure that we cover a little bit of 
Brazilian recent political history, trying to understand the roots of this. But why don't you get us started off by just saying a little bit about who Jair Bolsonaro is and why we should be paying attention to him? Sure. Jair Bolsonaro is... Jair Bolsonaro. Jair Bolsonaro. All right. You will will correct my pronunciations throughout this podcast. Uh, That's okay. That's okay. I was talking to a friend uh, who does podcasts a lot, and they said, you know, one of the things that you have to get right are pronunciations. And I said, okay, at least I'm covered because we're talking (laughs) about Brazil, so I should be okay. Jair Bolsonaro. Jair Bolsonaro. That's very good. Middle name, Messias, which means Messiah. Oh, well, okay. That's no no, no ambitions there. Yeah, no ambitions. Um, And he really embraced that middle name and was a federal deputy, grew up in Brazil during the military ruling. So between 1964 and 1988, 87. And up until very recently, he was quite fringe. You know, he was the kind of guy who says, we should abolish Congress. Or, you know, I wish our president had been killed during the demilitary ruling years. And he somehow started rising and becoming more and more popular. So this is a guy who has very successfully appeal to a growing segment of the Brazilian population that's, A, very disenchanted with government. So we've had the Workers' Party in power for the past 14 years, an insane amount of corruption scandals, and a very strong and growing evangelical population that's very morally and politically conservative. So you have this candidate that was very fringe up until very recently, who realized these two big shifts that were going on in Brazil and said, that's something that I can use. That's something that I can, you know, run on. And he did. And he won. And so I guess one obvious way of thinking about him is as part of this new wave of authoritarian populists. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, people call I, him the Trump of the tropics. The Trump of the tropics, <laughs> which is a lovely alliteration. I know. Um, and sort of from the outside, you know, some of the things that are cited in support of that is the fact that he has talked up the military mm-hmm. dictatorship in positive mm-hmm. ways, that mm-hmm. he is quite sexist, that he has said, for example, about his youngest child, whose daughter, that there was a moment of weakness, so he conceived a daughter. Is that a helpful way of thinking about him? I mean, is the Trump of the tropics moniker something that actually gives us a useful shorthand to understanding the nature of his political appeal? Or do you think that that obscures more than it reveals? I think if we're trying to initially put him in a box and on a spectrum and trying to figure out who is this guy, I think that's a nice shorthand. But there are some differences. I think that the main difference is that in Brazil right now, the main tensions are between the establishment that now is the leftist movement in Brazil. So the Workers' Party, a very socially and politically liberal movement, And that's the establishment, whereas here in the United States, I think that when you're thinking about Trump, yes, you're thinking about the establishment, you're thinking about Obama and the Clintons. But there is also this other enemy that he's been able to leverage, whereas in the U.S. you're thinking about immigrants or you're thinking about the African-American community that's usually painted as violent and involved in all sorts of criminal activities. And in Brazil, it also did a little bit of that with violence. So in the last 10 years, for example, 553,000 people have 
been killed in Brazil. 553,000. 553,000 huh. in 10 years. In 2017? And this is gang violence, drug wars, or what is the majority of that? Most of it is gun violence and gang wars and assaults. An average of 175 Things really suck for you because of these people. And things really suck because you've had a government that's protected, that's used a language of human rights to keep these people away from jail. And that's why your loved ones are being killed. So, you know, I think you're convincing me of two things here. The first is that the underlying situation in Brazil obviously is a lot worse. And that one of the reasons why Bolsonaro could have such appeal is that a lot of people really are desperate for a different solution. But we're also convincing me of real similarities here. You know, it is precisely part nearly of the definition that a lot of political mm -hmm. scientists would give of populism, that it is a movement in which you are trying to say, I'm standing up for ordinary people against, on the one hand, the elites, And on the other hand, all of these outsiders and minorities and people who are not like you and me with whom they're in cahoots. And that seems true of Donald Trump. That's true. Who's saying, you know, I am going to protect you against Hillary Clinton and her weird coalition of people who don't look like, quote unquote, you and me. Right. And the cosmopolitan um, elites. The cosmopolitan right. elites who care right. more about their fancy friends in Paris or people in the inner city in uh, Chicago than they care about you and me. Yeah. Right. And that seems to be precisely the appeal of Bolsonaro as well, right? Yes, that's correct. I think that Brazil is in a very fragile moment right now. And, you know, I'm from Brazil. I don't think we mentioned that in the beginning, but we're always waiting for somebody who can come in and fix everything. We're mm. always looking for that one person who can say, I'm going to put things in order. We do that when we play soccer, right? We always have that one player, Neymar, that we're saying, man, if only Neymar were playing, we would have won this hmm. game. So this tendency of saying this, it's this not a team. for a messiah. And exactly. along somebody whose exactly. middle name is, what is it in Brazilian? Messias. Messias. Well, there we go. And so it's sort of the planets align, right? Hmm. The economy is really bad. You have a record levels of unemployment. GDP isn't growing as it used to be growing, especially in comparison to other countries in the region. A series of corruption scandals. Everybody's going to jail. Lula is in jail. So this feeling of, oh my God, I can't trust anybody. I can't trust any of these people who have been in politics for the entire lives because they're all in this. They're mm. all taking my money away while hospitals are falling apart, schools are falling apart, infrastructure is terrible. And then there comes this guy with very little experience, very fringe, that everyone thinks this guy is crazy. Why does this guy want to bring the military back? Doesn't he remember how things are crazy? And then a lot of people are saying, yeah, maybe I didn't have all of my civil liberties. Maybe things weren't as great in political parties, weren't allowed. But at the end of the day, I don't want to be killed. I want to have a job. 
and I want my family to feel safe. Hmm. And that's what he's promising. Yeah, and we're seeing with Trump how strong those kinds of themes are, even in a society that actually works relatively well, yeah. at least in certain respects. And so you can imagine how much more strongly people would feel that in a place with vastly higher violent crime, a much bigger corruption problem, and so on. I mean, the one thing that does seem to me like a real difference between the pattern of support for populism in Brazil and the United States, and in fact, between the pattern of support for populism in Brazil and basically every other country that I've looked at, is who is attracted to the populists. So whether you look at the United States, whether you look at France, whether you look at Poland, I can not necessarily look at your salary, but I can certainly look at the part of the country you're from and predict how likely you are to be a populist. And the things I will use in order to make that determination is, are you from a urban area or a rural area? Are you from a rich area or a poor area? Are you from an area with lots of college graduates or few college graduates? And of course, it's the people in the rural areas, in the poorer areas, in the less educated areas who tend to vote for Viktor Orban, for Donald Trump, for Kaczynski in Poland, for Marine Le Pen. That's the opposite in Brazil from yes. what I understand, right? Yes. It is in the affluent educated, more urban South mm -hmm. rather than in the north of a country mm -hmm. that Bolsonaro has done best. So what explains that disanalogy? What explains that dissimilarity? Honestly, it's this anti-PT, anti-workers party sentiment. So if you look at the areas in Brazil where PT has a very strong presence, you're looking at exactly those areas that you're talking about. Low levels of education, income, poor areas in general. And the image that's associated with the Workers' Party is an image of a party that wants to distribute people's hard-earned money to the poor people, to the people who don't want to work. It's a party that's limited growth uh, by having very protectionist measures to in, in its oil industry, in its aviation industry. So you have this very elite liberal movement that's saying, we need to stop pretending we're a communist country. The language of the Workers' Party being a communist party or the Workers' Party supporters being communists who don't want to work, who want things for free from the state was very, very strong over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So you have this elite that's saying, I'm working hard. All of my money is being taxed away. There are all these poor people, all these poor people that I also think are criminals that are being protected from the state. And then you have this morally conservative bent to it that's also carnival. You see women dancing naked. Why are we teaching children how to have sex in schools? Things are out of control because of this government that sort of opened the floodgates to the poor, the uneducated. Mm. And it just became this, you know, free for all party and things got out of control. So one of the fascinating aspects of this that I want to get back to is the rise of this huge evangelical movement in Brazil. I certainly, until a few months ago, still thought of Brazil as this country that's sort of, you know, 99.9% Catholic, know. <laughs> like, you know, Poland and Ireland and so on. Millions uh, of people still go out to see the Pope when he comes, but yes. Well, he's a rock star. You have <laughs> I know, to I know, him. even if you're um, not Catholic. <laughs> uh, but actually, there's an incredibly fast-growing evangelical movement, which I understand is now basically closing in on having about a third of a 
Brazilian population. So I want to get back to that. But I think, you know, since you've been starting to talk about the Workers' Party and so on, we might need to go a little bit back in history to really understand the context of this disenchantment and so on. So let me give you a potted history, which you will correct in a moment. So as my understanding is Brazilian democracy after it stabilized, after it got established, after the military regime was dominated in certain ways by the country's elites. Mm -hmm. It had people who are white by and large, even for Brazilians, think of race in very different ways. In charge, it was educated, middle, upper middle class people who were calling the shots. Economically, this was a sort of relatively moderate centrist set of approaches. And there was a lot of people who were ethnic minorities, who were poorer, who were proletarian, who were in the less affluent parts of the country, perhaps to some extent who were indigenous, who felt excluded from the political settlement. Mm -hmm. And so the spokesperson for them was Lula, who was a figure of hope within the country and around the world, in part because he wasn't Hugo Chavez. He was a clear and proud leftist, but one who did pay respect to basic democratic institutions and ideals, who had a less hostile rhetoric towards the rich, even though he stood for clear redistribution. He did not use friend-enemy language in the way that Chavez did from the beginning. And so he won with, you know, a huge majority and was this figure of hope was celebrated around the world. What went right and what went wrong? So what went right was timing. Perfect timing for him to rise to power. You have this pink tide that's washing over Latin America and you're starting to seeing all these leftist presidents being elected into office. So it was a matter of time that Brazil would start riding that wave as well. There was also a huge commodities boom. So oil prices were through the roof, and he was able to successfully capitalize on that. So there was a lot of money coming in. And he used that money at first much more wisely, for example, than Chavez did in Venezuela, right? So how did he actually transform what the welfare state, what the country looked like under his rule. Yeah, he was really a pioneer, right? So you have all this money coming in, and his mission is to take the poor out of poverty. He's probably the first president in Brazilian history that says, I'm governing for the poor. The rich have had this for too long. This is your turn now. So he has this program that's called Bolsa Familia, which is a direct cash transfer. And it's been written about. And the very basic idea was you have a family, a poor family. They have to meet some threshold of poverty. And you make some requirements, right? Your kids must be enrolled in school. They must be vaccinated. Can you imagine here? (laughs) I wish, I wish we had that policy, yes. Uh, Your kids have to be vaccinated. The problem of vaccination in the United States is actually among rich, highly educated people who listen to shows like this. Perhaps not quite this. I don't think my audience is the non-vaccinating audience. But Uh, please um, vaccinate your children. But it's the people who listen to, you know, whatever. If Goob has a podcast, they're listening to that. So actually the people who really would get the Bolsa Familia perhaps uh, wouldn't. uh, Would not be listening. They are already getting vaccinated. But anyway, I agree with your point. Um, And you give them money. And the premise is, you know what you need to do with this money better than the government does. And all of a sudden, you have 36 million Brazilians rising out of poverty. Mm. This is 36 million people buying a refrigerator for Mm. the first time. This is people buying a TV for the first time or even flying for the first time. So it's this 
Brazilian dream that it's almost impossible to believe. You really think that, wow, okay, this guy's the real deal. He really cares about people. He really has a mission, and he's able to execute it. And things are going great until until they aren't. So why don't they attempt it anymore? <laughs> What's going wrong in this beautiful story? So then again, timing, financial crisis hits the world. It hits Brazil too. Doesn't hit Brazil as hard as it does much of Europe and the United States, but it takes a hit, and money isn't coming in as much anymore. Oil prices start to tank, mm. and commodities in general. And a little bit of insecurity starts to come up, and there had already been a few corruption scandals during his first administration that he managed to escape. And then you have this judge in the south of Brazil. His name is Sergio Moro, who would later become very, very famous, who starts looking into some weird shady deals between Petrobras, which is Brazil's state-owned mm -hmm. oil company, contractors, and politicians. And he discovers this massive kickback scheme where politicians are awarding contracts to Petrobras through this construction companies mm -hmm. that they're in cahoots with in exchange for money so that they can finance their campaigns and then be reelected into mm. office. And it becomes clear that Lula knew, Lula's appointees to Petrobras knew, a lot of politicians from the Workers' Party were involved mm. in that scheme. And then the judge has this approach of, okay, let's keep going. Let's see how far we can go. And it gets ugly. And then you start seeing all of this money that's being stolen from the Brazilian people. It's riches, right? It's oil money being put in politicians' pockets. And then things continue to sell. And is this just because you're talking about campaign, financing campaigns a moment ago, is this just campaign contributions or does it also go into the private pockets of politicians? Oh, right? private pockets, right? And the very interesting thing is... Growing up in Brazil from as long as I can remember, we used to talk about Brazil is the greatest country in the world, except we have corruption. Mm -hmm. We don't have natural disasters. We have beautiful weather. Everything is great, but we have corruption. And it was a sort of embedded thing in Brazilian culture and society. You know, it's just who we are. Mm. Yes, when you go vote for somebody, you pick the least corrupt mm. because you know that they're all going to be corrupt. Right. But then all of a sudden, it's just so in your face because you're seeing luxury cars. You're seeing trips to Miami. You're mm. seeing penthouses that there's no way their salaries were paying for that. And this sort of conspicuous consumption that's in your face and that's so shameless, it was too much. Right. It was too much. And that's when things got out of control. And you see the protests in 2015 taking millions of Brazilians out to the streets. So there's a few different ingredients in this story, right? One is the story of a discovery of this giant kickback scheme centered around a state-owned company, which actually is quite similar to the story of the breakdown of the first Italian political system in the early 90s, Tangentopoli 
or the operation against it was called Manipulite. Right. Makes yeah. Clean hands. Clean hands. Which and makes... that's what the operation that the judge in Brazil was inspired by. He was obsessed with oh, the Italian system and said, oh, let's do a clean hands Brazil style here. And it's absolutely similar because in Italy for a long time, there was this expression, sono tutti ladri, they're all thieves anyway, and we're going to pick for somewhat less bad one, but when the full scale of the system was exposed, and in Italy, it really, you know, depending on how, what percentage you had in Parliament, you had a right to differing percentages of a kickback, right? I mean, it was, uh, you know, a very well operationalized <laughs> system between the political parties. And when the full extent of that came through, people were deeply disgusted, and it led to the implosion of a political system and the rise of a kind of proto-populist in the mm-hmm. form of Berlusconi. So there's obviously a similarity there. But what about the objective situation of people, though? So on the one hand, you said the rise of crime, you have economic stagnation to some extent, you have some of the bad impacts of a financial crisis not being managed in the right way. On the other hand, I assume that a lot of the poorer Brazilians still have a bossa familial. They still feel like, actually, when I look back at my parents' life, my life now is a lot better. So is that what starts to determine the new political cleavage, where there is a set of people who remain loyal to the Labour Party because further might be disgusted by the corruption and so on. They say, you know what, at least they're our crooks and we got something real out of it. And it's the middle class and the upper middle class that say, we're not getting anything out of it and we're corrupt and we're really mm. going to turn against that on Mars. Yeah, I think there is a division within that division. I think that there are people who obviously have benefited a ton from a lot of these policies that Lula and his successor Dilma Rousseff, who was impeached later on, enacted. Not only Bolsa Familia, but I have friends who were able to go study abroad on scholarships from the government, you know, with the commitment to come back and put whatever they learned into use in Brazil. But there are also people who don't believe any of the accusations against Lula right? and any of the accusations against the Workers' Party or that at least think that this hasn't been an even-handed prosecution. So a lot of people are still talking about Dilma's impeachment as a coup and talking about Lula's trial as a political trial, not because he committed any crimes, but because it was favorable to them to have, you know, a very charismatic president in jail and unable to run for office. And some of the same people who are saying that the only reason for the problems in Venezuela at the moment is the United States are the ones who, in my experience, have made that argument particularly loudly in the American context. Right. Which is not to say that Lula and Chavez are similar, I think. There are very important differences between them. But this inclination to defend people who are corrupt or people who are populist, because at least the our corrupt people or our populist um, is one that we can easily understand within the United States because when we look out to Latin America, a lot of us want to make it a story about us. Right. And even the people who are rightly critical of America's historical role in Latin America right. love to talk about Latin America precisely because it allows them to make an argument against the moral standing of the United States. Yes. And so they're not looking at the facts on the ground. Yes. They are picking their team mm-hmm. and defending their team, mm-hmm. whatever the evidence may be. Mm-hmm. And then there is this populist narrative that says everyone is so upset about Lula because... When Lula was in power, you had to fly on a plane next to a black woman. You're so upset because, you know, the Mm -hmm. children of the poor were sitting 
at universities next to your rich kids, and you just couldn't deal with that level of discomfort. Oh, so that's interesting. So when you're characterizing the nature of the support for something like Bolsonaro now, mm-hmm. you're saying it's partially genuine disgust at the corruption, partially genuine worry about the dysfunction. Mm-hmm. It's also a counter-reaction, which again should sound familiar. Yeah, a loss to, of status, to right? To a loss of status, yeah. right. To the fact that, you know what, suddenly these people who we could sort of ignore, who we didn't really have to engage with, who would never have come into our kinds of spaces, who would never have entered our universities, mm-hmm. our quote-unquote, right. our planes, right. suddenly because they've been lifted up to some extent, you might sit next to them on a plane. They might be going to university with you. That's an interesting point that the roots of this current moment of hard populism in Brazil lie both in the genuine failings and in the genuine achievements of the Labour Party. Yes, that's very well put. That's exactly what's happening. And then there's this evangelical movement, right? Yeah, so tell us about that. So 30-something percent of Brazilians now are evangelicals. I know that evangelical movements have had their roots in Latin and Central America for a long Mm -hmm. time, but they used to be quite marginal, right? I mean, they They used to be in the single digits. It wasn't electorally relevant in the same way. It didn't shape society. I mean, a third of society, that is a fundamental transformation. How did that come about and what kind of impact is that having on the political and the cultural debate in the country? So one of the biggest moments was when Brazil enters a new democratic era. So we're thinking 1986 through 1988. And it's time to write a new constitution. And up until then, the motto in the evangelical spaces was believers don't mess with politics, right? Politics was a mundane, dirty thing that it wasn't godly. You didn't want to touch Hmm. that. But the writing of a new constitution in a country that was so dominated by Catholicism presented as this impossible to miss opportunity to say, we can decide what we want to be the laws of our country. Mm -hmm. And this is too good of an opportunity for us to miss. So you go from believers don't mess with politics to brother votes for brother. And you start seeing church-sponsored candidates. Mm -hmm. So you have this first election in 1986. And in 1987 and 1988, When Brazil is writing the Constitution, you have 33 members of Congress that identify as evangelicals. And that's when things kind of spiraled out of control and you started seeing that numbers rise. In addition to an insanely powerful media empire that they were able to acquire thanks to concessions that a former president gave to them in exchange for political support. Mm -hmm. So you have this evangelical message reaching Brazilian homes in areas that up until, you know, the 1980s, 1990s were dominated by Catholicism. And you have this theology of prosperity, this idea that work hard. If you work hard, God is going to reward you. Or if you give 10% of your income, you're going to get 10 times that back. Mm. Because if you believe, if you have faith, you're going to get that money back. So you have Lula coming in, bringing millions out of poverty. So they're starting to do Mm. well. They're starting to get a glimpse of what maybe a middle-class life could look like. And in comes this theology. The prosperity gospel, yeah. Yeah 
coming in and saying, the harder you work, the better you do. And of course, that wasn't Lila's intention, but he kind of set it up. Yeah, he set it up. And and then people started finding it very attractive. So what's the socioeconomic and demographic profile of evangelicals in Brazil? I mean, the way you've just been talking about it implies that a lot of them are sort of the people who have moved from poverty to the middle class over the last 20 or 30 years. That is sort of an upwardly mobile, still quite poor, still, you know, these are not grad school, they probably didn't even go to university, but people who take a real pride in what the job is compared to the parents who feel like life yes. is looking up. That's correct. Yeah. So you have this population that is still poor, you know, so far from being able to I don't know, go on vacation, right? That's sort of mm. your standard middle class achievement. But that takes a lot of pride in not needing help from oh, the government. I, see. Interesting. I should be able to take care of myself. If I work hard and if I show God that I'm willing to put in what it takes, mm. he's going to reward. And I don't need the government to give me things for free because there's no pride, there's no honor in getting things for free without having to work hard for them. And so presumably this turns a lot of the electoral base that Lula would have had in the early 2000s, yes. right? These are precisely the people who themselves or perhaps if they're mm-hmm. young, whose parents would have voted mm-hmm. for Lula as the champion of their interests, right. who now say, you know what, I'm a believer in the prosperity gospel. I'm looking after myself. I also have deeply socially conservative values and therefore am more right. attracted to various forms of right-wing politics. Right. So right. Uh, thank you very much, Lula, but I'm out yeah. of this. And the evangelical church also filled a gap that was left by the Catholic church, right? So the Catholic church was very involved in grassroots work, really focused on the poor, and eventually it sort of moved away from that. And as it moved away, there was this gap that initially was left by the state that the Catholic Church was filling that the evangelical church came in to fill, right? So evangelical church have a very strong presence in the favelas, have a very strong Mm -hmm. presence in places where nobody else wants to go in. I see. And when you're mobilizing people around religion, you can mobilize them around pretty much anything you want. And Catholic bishops and pastors, they're not allowed to talk politics. They're not allowed (laughs) to tell their congregations how to vote. Evangelical pastors, not only are they allowed to talk politics, they're allowed to run for office themselves. And voting is mandatory in Mm. Brazil. You have a growing population that has to vote. Interesting. And they have somebody telling them who to How vote for. How they should for. vote and that it might not be so interested in politics, they may not. Right. This helps to explain one of the things that I find fascinating about Brazil and a warning, frankly, to other countries. I mean, in the United States, there is this strong idea of the inevitable demographic majority. That mm-hmm. by 2044, that's actually been revised backwards, not 2052. And I have <laughs> reason to doubt even that. There will be a majority We're going to take over, Yasha. We're going to take over immigrants. Yes. Well, I don't know how I count there as an immigrant, how you count, but that, that, but the idea that there is going to be an inevitable demographic majority of minorities mm-hmm. in the United States and this sort of attempt to forward project the current political allegiances of different demographic groups and saying, so therefore the Democrats are always going to win. Oh, big mistake. What you're telling me about Brazil, <laughs> which is fascinating, is that even for Bolsonaro is clearly a far-right populist, even for 
he does have a significant electoral base among more upper middle class, mm -hmm. predominantly white Brazilians. He has been able to win the presidency with well over 50% mm -hmm. in a country that is majority minority. Yes. And presumably these demographically mixed and socioeconomically lower middle class, perhaps in emphasis, evangelicals are a huge part of the story mm -hmm. of how he was able to do that. So what is the racial politics of Bolsonaro? Does he, I mean, I know that sort of there's these famous quotes of when he's deeply misogynistic, he clearly has deep forms of nostalgia mm -hmm. for the military dictatorship. Does he avoid straightforwardly racialist or racist appeals because this is an important part of his coalition? What does that look like and how is he able to build this multi-ethnic coalition for far-right populism? Yeah, he's gotten much better. So when I started following him, and this was maybe three years ago when nobody was paying attention to him, and even I thought I'm kind of wasting my time paying attention to this guy who would ever vote for him. He would say crazy things, right? A lot of his very racially charged comments were around the black Brazilians who live in what I think in the United States you call plantations. So they're descendants of slaves who have the rights to the land, who have some sort of state welfare. And a lot of his comments would be you have all these black Brazilians who are lazy, who sit on their butts and don't do anything and want money for hmm. free from the state. Not a very subtle dog whistle there. No, 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 not subtle at all. And there's also a very clear correlation in his speech when he talks about criminals and who they are mm. and what they look like. But as he became more I, I popular... I couldn't possibly imagine any U.S. president associating I particular... Could, I couldn't either. ...groups of nationalities I, with particular I criminal activities, Yeah, it's, for example. it's very that, nuanced. That's never happened It's yet. also very nuanced. <laughs> but he used to do that a lot more. And as he got more popular, I'm assuming he had a very smart team of people telling him, hey, people are starting to notice, so you need to calm down a little bit. So he has been all things considered, pretty mild for the last six months. Um, I mean, what's striking to me about that is how quick that transition is, right? That three years ago, he was making these racist appeals, mm -hmm. and then he starts to tone it down, and it actually has an electoral impact relatively quickly. And we should remember that in the United States, according to some polls, Donald Trump has an approval rating of about 40% among Latinos, right? So again, that should be about as clear a case of people saying, well, look, given his comments about Mexicans, given what he's doing at the border. Maybe. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, and, right. and yet that's not the case. So let's so imagine if Trump took a page out of Bolsonaro's book and was a little bit more subtle about it. He would 100% be reelected. Very quickly, yes. he would rise in popularity. Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah, one of the things that was very similar in the way Brazilians thought about Bolsonaro and the way Americans thought about Trump, people who voted for Trump, was this, he doesn't mean any of those things, right? Or, mm. come on, you know, he's not going to lock everyone up or he's not really going to build a wall. And same thing with Bolsonaro. A lot of the claims that he would make, you know, oh, I'd rather have a dead son over a gay son. A lot of people saw them as, yes, those are kind of unfortunate comments, but of course he wouldn't want his son to be dead, right? This sort of, hmm. you know, doing the work for him to minimize a lot of his comments. And then the other thing, and I think this is very similar to how people think about Italian politics, is that 
Brazilians are not as attached to their leaders' morals and values in their private lives. There is this sort of, I don't care what you're doing at night. I don't care if you're cheating on your wife. I don't care what you're doing. As long as you're doing your job, I don't care if you're a horrible person. And... Bolsonaro was able to get away with that, too, you know? So this sort of, yeah, maybe he hates gays, maybe he hates women, but A, how much power does he really have to do any of that? B, it's his life, it's his rights to have whatever opinion he wants to have. So people were able to do a very good job of separating his personal views to what he would be like as a president. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think there's sort of two dynamics at play here. One is the one you point out, which is, well, he may be an asshole, but at least he's our asshole, mm-hmm. right? Like he may be a bastard, but at least he's looking out for our interests, which which I think is very strong in the case of somebody like Donald Trump as well. And the other is a little bit more complicated. I think it's that when people say outrageous things and disgusting things, a majority can find the thing they say disgusting, but if it leads all of the political establishment whom they hate to say that guy is unacceptable, they say, well, you know what? If this guy is hated by all of these other people, I don't really like what he said either, but that's a good sign. If he's hated by all of those people, there must be something all right about him. And so there's an odd sort of secondary dynamic going on there, I think. Yeah, Yeah, Brazil has a very strong macho culture as Mm. well, you know, very patriarchal society. So when you have a candidate that's saying... Yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with gays, but, you know, I don't want my son to be gay. That resonates with a lot Hmm. of people. I don't hate gay people, but, you know, I'd rather not have to deal with them. So Now, the other thing that you started to raise, which is really sort of the last set of things that I want to think through is, so how dangerous is this to Brazilian democracy? And, you know, is Bolsonaro just somebody who says horrible things and perhaps tweets strange things, as we know in other places? (laughs) Or uh, has he actually started already to use the power of the state to suppress freedom of speech, for example, and the freedom of the press and so on? How far can he actually take control of the state? So I think one of the things thinking long term in Brazil is a lot of his voters, even the people who would tell me, you know, yeah, sometimes I don't feel as comfortable with X, Y, and Z things. A lot of Brazilians saw his election as a four-year bet. So it's this approach of we've had 14 years of the Workers' Party. Let's try something new Hmm. and see if it works. And if it doesn't, we do the same that we do. Every four years, we elect someone else, right? That's been the way that a lot of people have sort of rationalized their decision Hmm. to vote for him. And like, we just need to get PT out. Hmm. Anything but PT. Hmm. And if that means electing Bolsonaro, so be it. It's four years. You know, things will adjust Hmm. back. In terms of what that means, I think that we're starting to see a few interesting slash worrisome things. So we're seeing more evangelical candidates being elected. A lot of candidates from Bolsonaro's party were elected to office Mm -hmm. and, you know, have platforms ranging from let's make abortion illegal to let's give women who've been raped some sort of cash assistance so that they don't have to undergo an abortion and Mm. they keep their babies. And so this very, like, morally conservative political approach. And 
Bolsonaro himself is already trying things out and trying to stay true to his promises that he made to the Brazilian people. One of the most recent things, he changed our arms statute. So he's made it easier for people hmm. to acquire guns, guns huh. in Brazil. Yes, it's so way harder in Brazil than it is in America. You still have to undergo background checks and take classes and whatnot. But it went from being nearly impossible unless hmm. you were a police officer or in the security business hmm. to, you know, if I went to Brazil and I wanted to make a, a strong case as to why I needed a gun, I, I'd be able to, hmm. to get one. So in the same way that I think we're talking about how a lot of Trump's promises on the campaign trail he actually intended to execute them. We're starting to see a lot of that with Bolsonaro, too, starting with making it easier for people to acquire guns. So I think there's two things here. The first is that my understanding is that he has actually started to constrict the freedom of speech in education, for example. Most universities in Brazil are state-owned, mm -hmm. and my understanding is that there's very strong pressure on left-wing academics and professors and those who have been critical of Bolsonaro and that there is a real chilling of speech that's already happening there. Mm -hmm. um, so that's on one end of a ledger. On the other end of a ledger, my understanding is that Bolsonaro does not actually have a majority in Congress at the moment. Right. Um, uh, and so I guess I'm trying to understand how worried should we be about things like these infringements on freedom of speech? And on the other hand, to what extent is the system protected, as perhaps the United States is now protected by the majority that Democrats have in the House of Representatives, right. by the fact that he does not have control of the legislature. Right. He doesn't have control, but he could in a little over a year. So the Brazilian party system is very fluid. We have, I don't know, last time I looked, 30-something parties. Hmm. You know, a shout out to my colleague Lee Drutman, who wants more political parties in the U.S. There's probably a soft spot between 2 and 30. You can go back to the episode <laughs> of a good time to listen to Lee. I am somewhat skeptical of Lee's point that proportional representation <laughs> would save the United States for precisely that reason. But uh, I, I see uh, you, you might share my skepticism. <laughs> it's a very fluid system, which means that it's very easy for a candidate to switch parties depending on the political winds of the moment. So he might not have a majority right now. It might be harder for him to pass legislation on freedom of speech, on campuses, anything that's very concrete. It might be hard. But in the next two years, not impossible. And I think the other thing is, and, and we see that here, and it's really hard to quantify, but when you have a president like Bolsonaro, something in the air changes, right? There is some self-censorship. There is something in the air that makes you think that things that weren't okay are now okay. Mm -hmm. So even if you don't see laws that are being passed— uh, there are things that are changing, you know, members of the LGBTQ community are scared. Some women are scared. Some women are very happy that Bolsonaro mm. won, but a lot of women are also terrified. So in the long run, it's a change in what's in the realm of possible. And with Bolsonaro as president, I think that are a lot of Brazilians, especially Young Brazilians who have no idea what, you know, living in a country under military rule was like, to consider maybe things wouldn't be so bad. And hmm. maybe it's okay that we have a more of a an authoritarian president. Maybe that's a good thing for democracy. Final question. That's an easy one. 
very easy. I promise <laughs> it's not really. Is there something that you think democratic activists, opponents of authoritarian populists, whether in the United States or in parts of Europe or elsewhere in the world, might be able to learn either from the mistakes that Bolsonaro's opponents made in the last election or from what they might have done right? I think one of the big lessons from Brazil and Bolsonaro is people have a very particular set of needs. And when those needs aren't being met, when people don't feel safe, when they feel threatened, or when they feel a loss of status, it doesn't take a lot to convince them to do things that maybe they wouldn't do under normal circumstances. And demographic shifts happen actually pretty quickly. You know, if you're not paying attention, 20 years go by and you have a very different population, but you're still operating under the assumption that you have the same population of 20 years ago and you fail to listen to the people. And when you do, all you need is somebody like Bolsonaro or Trump or Orban to come along and say, oh, I've been listening to you this hmm. whole time. Cheyenne Polymejo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Come up with your own suggestion about how to plug The Good Fight and send it in to me at thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.